Flight Guys Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Flight Guys Turkey. This is Jansu Çamlıbek. It's rather a cold week in Istanbul, unusual for this time of the year, but it kind of helps at least for those of us who would like to stick to self-isolation rules, despite Turkish government's eagerness to open the country to take it back to the normal. Well, it seems most governments around the world are resorting to similar methods to go back to normality, but in the Turkish context, I'm mostly worried about Istanbul, where I live, which has been the local epicenter of the pandemic here. We are talking about 16 million plus people. Probably the official number, including the surroundings, is close to 20 million. I strongly believe the regulations for Istanbul should have been and should be different than the one that are applied elsewhere. However, it seems the ruling elite has a different game plan. I just hope that we do not observe a second wave of the outbreak soon. I would like to say hi. Can. Can. Hi. Hi, Jansu. How are you? I am good. How are you? I'm good as well. I'm experiencing a little uh, change of scenery as I came to Izmir. This time I'm joining you from Izmir. But let me say Izmir is very different than Istanbul vis-a-vis people's reaction to COVID. A lot of people actually don't seem to care about it that much and life, it appears, is very close to being normal. And today we have a guest. I would like to steal it from David Letterman and say that our next guest does not really need introductions. He's someone our loyal audience and readers will know very well. He's uh, big in diplomatic circles. I'm happy to say that he's a very good friend of mine and I'm proud to have him as one of my top columnists for Duvar English. We go way back, probably like uh, 16, 17 years ago, maybe even more when he was a young diplomat in Baghdad. He had reached out to me uh, to correct my reporting. Well, that's quite something. We do not have that breed of young diplomats left in the Turkish Foreign Service anymore because anyone, even in higher ranks, who would decide to talk to a journalist would be seen as a traitor almost. So that's another topic of discussion. Back to our guest, Aydın Selcan, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on your show and also thank you very much for the kind introduction and for your encouragement and invitation that you extended to me to contribute to Duvar English. Great to have you with us today and great to have you with us at Duvar English from the beginning. And as for the podcast, I have been meaning to invite you for a long time, but then we were caught in the middle of the COVID storm. And now that we are slowly going back to the diplomatic agenda, John and I, we thought that it would be perfect to take a break from the domestic agenda and focus on Ankara's diplomatic games. You've been writing extensively on the foreign policy files, both for Duvar English and also Gazete Duvar, and also you appear on different independent Turkish uh, media outlets to analyze the, the developments. Uh, I would like to start from Libya. I would say that although it may not appear so, this global pandemic and the light signs of course correction in Turkey's foreign policy endeavors seem to me interrelated. 
and we can get back to that when I will be answering other questions. But when it comes to Libya, which is a good case study, because it is one of the fronts uh, together with Syria, Iraq, and perhaps to a certain extent, in more general terms, Eastern Mediterranean and Cyprus, uh, Libya is one of the areas where Turkey is exerting pressure and have a deliberate influence in the outcome of the conflict. Even though I am on the record for being quite openly critical of the foreign policy of this presidency or government in Ankara, I will have to concede that there are military successes on the ground. Yet, I have uh, certain questions in mind, which I tried to share also previously through my columns in uh, Dual English. These may be summarized as perhaps uh, threefold. The first question in my mind is how to convert these military successes into a political outcome that would be beneficial to this country, to put it in other words, which will be suitable to its national interests. The other question in my mind, are there more efficient and cheaper ways to reach that political outcome beyond military presence overseas or in the case of Syria, across right across the border or in Iraq? The third angle in my mind is whether these present endeavors, as I call them, are or will be sustainable in the mid to long run and whether there is a possibility these present so-called military successes will bring about, well, I do not want to exaggerate, but yes, will bring about the ruin of first Turkey's economy and what is left of its democracy. These are the questions that are preoccupying for me when it comes to Libya. But in other terms, yes, the way things stand at the moment, Turkey's contribution uh, to the conflict by propping up the general national accord government led by Fayez Saraj and recognized by the international community changed the situation on the ground and first stopped uh, General Haftar's so-called Libyan National Army on its tracks when it was trying to overcome Tripoli in a couple of weeks' time, as they suggested. Uh, first, it stopped the thrust of Libyan National Army towards Tripoli. Then it uh, also dislocated Haftar-related armed groups' presence to the west of, of Tripoli, and then uh, even managed by merely using the air defense systems and the armed drones to take El Watia base. And now, as things stand, even according to some experts, Haftar's coalition is crumbling due to its defeat in front of Turkey's military presence supporting the National Accord government. Yet, first of all, both neighbors, Algeria and Egypt, do not appear to welcome Turkey's presence in Libya. And behind Egypt, of course, we can see the presence of United Arab UAE, United Arab Emirates, 
support. And we know that United Arab Emirates, from a military point of view, cannot be compared to the formidable firepower of Turkey. But we have to also admit the fact that UAE has very deep pockets. And last but not the least, perhaps the way Russia and US will be involved, and they seem to be more interested in getting involved nowadays, US and Russia's involvement in this conflict will also affect the diplomatic position. Despite the differences on the regime, the Turkey-Russian rapprochement in the Syrian theater holds. So are we moving towards a similar kind of equation in the Libyan theater? What do you think with Russia? When it comes to Syria, as US's special representative for Syria, Ambassador Jeffrey declared recently, I believe that was in Hudson Institute in D.C., that his job was to turn Syria into a quagmire for Russia. That, to my mind, maybe is one of the motives that changed Turkey's approach towards U.S. When it comes to Libya, uh, through the U.S. ambassador in Libya, although he is not physically in Libya, Ambassador Norland's recent statements, and also the statement by NATO Secretary General Mr. Jens Stoltenberg. According to both statements, we can see that the Atlantic Alliance appears to stand now more firmly behind the GNA. Syria is one of the keystones, if I may, in Russia's foreign policy. Russia is present in Syria through the invitation of President Bashar al-Assad of Syria, and Russia managed to obtain both Himeimim and Tartus bases from Syria with an officially signed bilateral agreement for a quarter of century, and that would be probably easily extended when the time will come. In Libya, uh, Russia preferred to take a back seat and preferred also to deal with both Haftar sites and Sarai sites through different intermediaries. Also, one may say that uh, Russia's dealings with Tripoli, with the GNA, was more on an official term, uh, yet with the other side, with Haftar, on a semi-official term. But also it is a fact that Russia extended some support to Haftar as well through the mercenaries of Wagner Group. Wagner Group is owned by Prigozhin, which is also a member of the close circle of President of Russia, Mr. Putin. Yet, to me, in Libya, Russia appears to be seated on the fence and wait for the outcome and will be just happy as they did in Syria to get a base in Sirte as uh, agreed at the Qaddafi time. By the way, also Turkey's uh, this very famous maritime demarcation agreement, which is hailed today as one of the main reasons of Turkey's involvement in Libya, was also agreed on at Qaddafi's time in Libya. So it's not uh, such a recent novelty. In both Syria and Libya, this what I call slight appearance of a course correction in Turkey's foreign policy. So Russia's presence to support the adversaries of Turkey's foreign policy in Libya and Syria appears 
to me to be one of the main motives to push Ankara to reconsider its valuing of the Atlantic Alliance, if I may say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can get into that too, but also I have to remind that on some occasions, Russian and American interests converge <laughs> within mm-hmm. the context of Libya and Syria, but we, we may get to that. Coming back to what you were saying earlier about the military successes mm-hmm. of Ankara in Syria and in Libya, we can analyze them separately. As a former diplomat, if you were on the job today working on these files, what would you be advising to a government if they were listening to you? <laughs> of course. I understand that the general framework to pursue these policies in order for Turkey to be a strong stakeholder in these regions go through some sort of military power and exerting military influence. That's for starters. But what I understood from your words and where you become more critical of this policy is that Ankara fails to turn these military successes into political successes and concrete, viable, sustainable policies. I believe that whichever elected government is in place in Ankara, that government at the end of the day, should take the decisions in foreign policy. This is one. Yes, it is true that these policies should be accountable first to the parliament and then in order to be legitimate, to be constantly audited and scrutinized by the media and the academia to a certain extent, by the civil society. But the decisions at the end of the day, the buck stops at the president's desk, uh, as in France, uh, as in U.S., and now in Turkey. So in Ceteris Paribus laboratory conditions, we are not going to get into the anomalies of this system in place in Ankara. From a purely foreign policy perspective, it should be a civilian foreign policy. So this is first. Second, as in my opening analysis, I mentioned national interests. Mm-hmm. But if I just add the word national security interests, all of a sudden that security, national security issues raise eyebrows in Ankara and it adds a military dimension to it. As if national security depends on the military, whereas there are other window dressing or marketing or public relations issues and these uh, constitute Diplomacy. This is not true because diplomacy involves also, includes the national security issues as directed by the civilian government in place. So there are no purely military issues. All the issues must be decided at the end of the day by the government in place and they should be accountable to the parliament. This is not the case today. Uh, this is one. On the other hand, I am talking about when I write for Duar English also the sustainability of these policies in the Midra and also whether there are certain controversies in these policies. For example, when you sign a bilateral deal with Libya for the exclusive economic zone or the maritime demarcation, You rely on international law. 
That is your argument. The legitimacy depends on international law. When it comes to agency, since almost over half a century, what Turkey rightfully, by the way, in my mind as well, says is that the international maritime law cannot be applied in the agency because of the particularity of this sea. So how are you going to apply this maritime law or international law when it comes to Libya? And then you turn around and you say something else for Cyprus and the agency. This is one controversy. The other thing is, all right, if you want to use, exert unilateral raw force in changing the political outcome in places like Libya, how are you going to complement that, turning around and say that we are going to use multilateral uh, diplomacy and we will try to get Egypt and other countries like Israel on board to follow that uh, sort of policy. And also the third controversy is that claiming the GNA, Fayyaz Sarraj, as legitimate, but when it comes to Syria, Bashar al-Assad is not legitimate. And even, all right, in Syria since 2011, there is a civil war. Perhaps the legitimacy of Assad, although not legally, but politically, can be challenged. What about Egypt's Sisi, for example? Or even what about Netanyahu in Israel? These are also not seen as legitimate counterparts by Ankara. So, And John, maybe you can remind us about Turkish people's opinions on Turkish military presence in countries like Libya and Syria. The reaction of the public is not standard to any cross-border military operation. For example, when in operations regarding crossing the border, say, to Syria, there is much more support from the public because in that case, we actually know who the enemy is. And the enemy is someone that we also relate to as the enemy, meaning the government is going in there to uh, fight the YPG or EKK or whatever. So there's a common enemy there for which the public can say, okay, this, this operation is justified. This is about national security. So we, we should support this. And we have seen this actually during the Afrin operation and then Peace Spring and then Euphrates uh, Shield. In all these cross-border operations in Syria, there was large public support. John, sorry, can you pause there for a second? Because among all those three operations, the first one, Euphrates Shield, was not really the motivation. Of course, in the back of their minds was uh, to go after the YPG. But then... We had a different narrative at the time that they were going to fight with ISIS, no? I didn't correct me if I'm wrong, because the reasoning there was a little different than what happened in Afrin. Yeah, so that might very well be the case, but the overall perception vis-a-vis operations in northern Iraq or Syria are usually that these are done against terrorist groups that is directly relevant to our national security. So that's a successful branding by the government to, to make it look like but it's against only, the PKK. But that's not only branding of the governments in recent times. This has a legacy of more than three decades. Anything northern Iraq, northern Syria sort of has the perception that this is you know, fighting terrorism. So 
yes, I mean, might be success of this government as well, but this has a this perception has a legacy. That's not the case for Libya, however, John. So during the time when we were discussing sending troops to Libya, in our poll, 58% of the population said that they were against sending troops to Libya. Tied to that result is 75% of the participants actually agreed with the statement that when it comes to regional conflicts, Turkey should be a mediator rather than an actor that chooses sides and joins the fight. So when it comes to more distant conflicts, the population wants Turkey to be active, wants Turkey to be a regional leader, not necessarily by having boots on the ground. The population wants Turkey to be a, a mediator. Now, going back to your original question, does it make sense from a domestic political perspective for the uh, government? Now, although there is wide support for cross-border operations in northern Syria, this support comes from the fact that people actually rally around the flag and not necessarily rally around the executive or the president. So, you know, for cross-border operations of this kind, support can come through two channels. The population either rallies around the executive or they rally around the flag. And in Turkish uh, case, it seems that the support is more uh, to the flag and to the army than the executive. And we see this actually from the voting intentions that we collect on our polls. Throughout all these cross-border operations, the vote share of either the ruling party or the opposition didn't change even the slightest. I mean, they all changed uh, within the margin of error. So the fact that society actually supports these operations doesn't necessarily mean that people's voting intentions change. Then the question is, why is the government doing this then? And there, I think Aydin already provided an answer to that. I mean, yes, this government has tied foreign policy in an unprecedented way to domestic politics, but at the end of the day, they still do pursue the benefits of the country when it comes to foreign policy. So even though it doesn't necessarily provide that much of voting support, they still pursue those foreign policy choices. If I had only one shot at trying to change anything in Turkey's foreign policy, if that would be to change Turkey's approach to Syria's Kurds and to Iraq's Kurds, because if we change that approach, if we stop seeing... By the way, I, I know the fact that, yes, YPG, YPJ, PYD are extensions of PKK in Syria, it is true, but they do not, by all the means, represent an existential challenge to Turkey. And just changing that uh, approach will be pretty much in the interest of Turkey's democracy, first of all, by changing the situation in Ankara, and also then by providing a much more cheap and effective way to defend Turkey's national interests in these two countries, in Syria and Iraq. And the third, of course, would be to speak directly to those in power in all these capitals, in Damascus, in Tel Aviv, in Cairo, without looking into how they were appointed, whether Sisi acceded to that post by, for example, staging a military coup, or whether Bashar al-Assad is a brutal dictator or not. These may be debated in the media or among the civil society, but when it comes to diplomacy, yes, one has to deal with these leaders as we do all around the world. I, I totally agree with you in the sense that the Kurds 
in Iraq and Syria should not be alienated by the opinion makers in Ankara. However, it seems that, judging from uh, the political calculations of uh, Mr. Erdogan today, it seems impossible at the time because of his partnership with Devlet Bahçeli and his partnership with the MHB. And it requires President Erdogan to change partners, to shift to a rather wiser policy in terms of dealing with the Kurds. This is how I see it. And I'm not saying this is impossible because it was quite a radical shift from pursuing a peace process with Abdullah Öcalan in Imralı. And then uh, in only two years time, we observed a shift towards the nationalists so that uh, President Erdogan could go ahead with his exclusive presidency project. So nothing is impossible in politics, nothing is impossible in Turkey. But with today's calculations, uh, what you're saying seems to me is difficult to employ as a foreign policy in Ankara. But coming back to his speech last week was interesting. If you caught in between the lines, I will ask you what you made of those because He said, world is soon to find out what Turkey is doing in Syria and Libya. As for Libya, we already discussed and it kind of made a difference. Turkey's military presence there. And also we have to remind that this military presence, most of it was not the Turkish soldiers. That's also an interesting story. But what about Syria? Because most of the observers that I talk on the ground, including the Turkish ones, by the way, were saying that there is no need for Turkey to pursue another strike into the YPG-SDF-held areas at the moment, ahead of the next US presidential election. But looking at Erdogan's words last week, is he implying another operation or is he saying something else? What did you make of it? Well, it is really quite difficult, if not impossible, to make anything out of these statements because it is such a closed circle in Ankara or at the president's presidential palace that takes these decisions. It is very difficult to foresee. But in more general terms, I see few developments. First, all these military adventures or endeavors or the military presence first in Syria and then in Libya. These are open-ended. We do not have any political endgame. So we do not know which conditions will be on the ground in order for Turkey to end these military adventures. And these military operations come with a price tag attached. And Turkey's economy was already strained before the COVID-19 pandemic. And now it is even in a worse condition. So this sudden interest towards the West, towards the EU and the US, I believe is based on that strain on the economy. On the other hand, when it comes to Kurds, yes, I know and I agree with you that unless there is a new composition of a political coalition in Ankara, it is very difficult to see any change. Um, but it is also a fact that, and this was also part of the motives in the what I call the course correction of Turkish foreign policy, especially towards U.S., that the Americans are really trying, and I, Americans, the U.S., are trying their best to render Rojava or the east of Euphrates or north and east uh, Syria, uh, that area, more palatable 
to, to Ankara and perhaps to draw a line between Rojava and Kandil, creating new umbrella organizations and giving them new names. And also from the Ankara's perspective, Ankara is ready to, to see the Kurdish issue as a security challenge, as a military issue, but not a political one. And by default, they are even more inclined in Ankara to deal through Abdullah Öcalan, who is in prison in Imrali Island since 1999. And he was allowed for a first time since 21 years to speak over the phone and to make what his views on these issues public, which shows to me that Ankara or Mr. Erdogan is even more inclined to deal with Öcalan rather than the political organization of, of HDP. Mm-hmm. So as long as Kurdish issue remains strictly a security issue and a military issue, on the other hand, as long as the Americans are trying to render North and East Syria more palatable to Ankara and sort of aligned with Turkey when it comes to more general approach to Libya and Syria, I believe a change in the approach in the coming months, half a year or so, to this issue will not be such a surprise, even with the present coalition between MHP and AK Parti in Ankara. Right. I also hear rumors that Mr. Öcalan in Imrala, I shouldn't call him Mr. Öcalan, right? I might be prosecuted here. But, well, this uh, is see your New York Times approach, so you are right. <laughs> I mean, I hear rumors in Ankara from political circles that he is ready to, Öcalan is ready to, get on board for a new try. But uh, yeah, we'll see in the next year or so, probably, as you said. But I would like to come back to what you said about President Erdogan's government's newly found uh, affection towards the West. Comes quite handy in times to go back to Europe and the US. And it seems that the COVID outbreak has been one of the reasons to do so. At this point, I'd like to turn to Jan because I know he has fresh data on Turkish people's perceptions towards our international partners. Jan, what was the last question that you posed in your survey? First of all, I can very easily say that the Turks don't trust anybody. So when we ask them on a scale of one to five, how much do you trust the following? Nobody scores about 1.5. Right, so there's a general mistrust. The highest trust is is towards Qatar. The trust for EU is 1.42 out of five, and for Qatar is 1.45. So Jan, uh, before actually, before you move on, can you remind us when did Qatar get into this list? Really, I don't remember in the last decade. It's probably quite recent that Qatar is among these countries that. Well, actually. Jan Suvi, this is not a uh, open-ended question, so we actually list the countries and the organizations. Right. But okay. obviously the reason why we started including Qatar is, I find self-evident, in the past years we've really uh, grown fond of uh, each other. And as recently as last week, we actually secured a swap line agreement with the Qatari uh, central mm-hmm. bank. All these developments, you know, makes it justified that we include Qatar in the list. But, you know, there isn't a particularly high level of trust towards Qatar. What's interesting, on the other hand, is that while the trust towards the EU is really low, 1.4 out of 5, the support for EU membership has grown 
quite impressive with 64% of the population. Some information about the history of this indicator. Before the referendum for the constitutional change back in 2017, this figure was around 44-45% of the population. In about three years, we've gone all the way from 44-45% support to EU membership to 64.3% support. This is quite an increase. I think regardless of the mistrust, I think it's becoming more widely acknowledged that in times of hardship, especially the kind of hardship that the pandemic actually presents, particularly vis-a-vis you know, trade, tourism, I think EU right now is singled out as a more reliable partner. When we look at the party breakdown of support to Turkey's EU membership, it's much more homogeneous than what we would have two, three years ago. Meaning the support among AK Party voters is 60% and support among MHP voters is 72%. It seems that while there's a high level of mistrust towards EU partners and EU itself, it seems like there is more support for a deepened, closer relationship, particularly in the face of challenges that the pandemic provides. Well, that's quite quite big news for me. 72% of the MHB voters would like to be a member of the EU. Am I? Well, they support EU membership. So, I mean, you know, as you know, there's a process and, you know, during the process, uh, perceptions and, and feelings can change a lot. But that's But quite right a now, big number. It's, it's fair to say that 70% of MHB voters are not opposed to the idea. Right. So. And, and that's a big bump. Yes, you're right. Turkish people in general, when asked what kind of country they would like to live in, the examples that they cite, even from the most Islamist to the most leftists, or from the most nationalist to the most internationalist, along whichever line you wish to classify the Turkish population, they wish to live in a country like Germany, for example, or Britain, or, or Norway. Thing. On the other hand, for, from my more narrower angle of foreign policy. As our larger northern neighbor, Russia, there is a, a deep-seated craving for respect from the West, as Turkey claims to be since at least mid-19th century. Turkey wishes to be seated firmly at the table as an equal partner, uh, yet it also asks for respect of its identity. But this is the quest for Turkey, Republic of Turkey's identity is ongoing. And I believe what we are going through today, both internally and when it comes to our foreign policy, may also be seen as part of that ongoing search for identity. Polls conducted by other firms also confirm that actually when given the option majority of the population uh, wants to live in countries characterized by more liberal democracy. That's why actually I'm not that surprised with these findings as well. Well, thank you so much, guys. It's been really delightful to talk to both of you today. Now we are coming to a close. I would like to wrap up. I'm sorry that we couldn't really get into discussing more about Turkey-US relations, but probably that requires another full episode uh, so Aydın hopefully we'll have you back in the next weeks to come but thank, uh, you. thank you so much for all the insights you provided here with your expertise and experience in the Turkish Foreign Service Can 
No, John, so I have nothing to add. I'd like to thank Aiden as well for coming on this episode of the podcast. And let me thank all the listeners. And hopefully see you next week. Take care.